If you have your Bible, will you turn to the second chapter of Revelation? Well, really, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is what we'll look at today. <clears throat> Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. <coughs> May we bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here at this place today. Thank you for this lovely camp and those who have come before us and poured so much into preparing a beautiful place where we could come apart and aside and just be with God's people and meet with, and meet with the Lord and have a lot of fun and fellowship and study the Word of God and grow deeper in the Lord. We pray that I will use these days to prepare us for all the uncertainties that will come in the year 1991 and 92 as we go into the fall and the school year and all the things ahead. And open the Word of God to us today. We might hear from heaven. Oh God, this book that sometimes seems so closed is really an open book. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will open it even further to our hearts today. That we might glean spiritual truths that will live in our hearts and give us a spirit of expectancy and yet a spirit of warning. And may we heed those spirit, those, those admonitions and, and may the Holy Spirit speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, will you keep in mind that the book of Revelation is the apocalypse, that is, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And we noticed yesterday that God gave this revelation of Jesus to Jesus so that Jesus, in turn, could give it to his servants. It was single, symbolized or singled to his servants by the angel. It is not a closed book, it is an open book. The word apocrypha means closed or veiled. The word apocalypse means unveiled or revealing. And so as we study the book of Revelation, we study the unveiling or the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, his church, and the things that are to come in the years ahead. In chapter 1, we saw the vision of the glorified Christ. The last view the world had of Jesus was on a cross. I don't believe the world ever saw the resurrected Christ. They still do not. They can follow Jesus up to the crucifixion, and that's as far as it goes. Some years ago, somebody wrote a musical called Jesus Christ the Superstar. I didn't like that. And one of the prime reasons I didn't like it is because it left Jesus at the cross. Had no understanding of his resurrection. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And chapter 1 of Revelation is an unveiling of the risen, glorified Christ. And what he will look like and what he is doing in this day. And as we come to chapter 2, we come to the 
church age itself. The key to understanding Revelation is verse, chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus said to John, write the things which you have seen, the vision of the glorified Christ, chapter 1. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the vision of the church age. Write the things which shall be hereafter. Beginning with chapter 4, going through chapter 22, the things that are yet future. One of the interesting things about the close study of the book of Revelation is that after chapter 3, from chapter 4 on, you don't find any mention of the church. The word doesn't even appear until you get to the very end. And the reason for that is because that's the end of the church age. And the church has been ransomed and redeemed and raptured and is with the Lord. And down here on the earth, the awful tribulation begins to unveil. We'll get into that in the next few days. But today we want to center on the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And with your Bible open, let's look at chapter 1, beginning with verse 4 through 8, and then verse 20. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loveth us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us a kingdom of priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now as we come to this section, I want you to see three things. Number one, the seven churches themselves. And we look at them. Number two, we need to hear the admonition that is given to these seven churches. And number three, we need to experience the personal promise and admonition that is for each one of us. Now, look in chapter two, and we want to look at these seven churches for just a moment. The seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These seven churches, first of all, represent seven real churches in the day in which John wrote. There was a church over in Philadelphia. There was a church at Laodicea. There was a church down at Ephesus. All these were real churches. Now, there were not just seven churches in that day. There were churches all over that period, Asia Minor, all over that section. Asia Minor, down in Africa, North Africa, over in Palestine, and of course in Jerusalem, and at Antioch. But these seven churches were singled out as representatives of the various churches of that day. 
That's the first thing we need to remember. They were real churches. They were real churches with real problems. Even in the time in which John wrote, which was at the end of the first century, about 95, 96, 97 A.D. Secondly, these seven churches represent the various ages of the church and the problems that would be paramount in that particular age. For example, the church at Ephesus represented the first century. The first century church, as John was beginning to pass off the scene, those early Christians who had known Jesus in the days of his flesh were about to go. They looked back and they saw that even then the church was beginning to leave its first love. All through those ages, these 2,000 years, there are church, the, the various churches here represent those problems that were paramount in that particular age. Thirdly, those seven churches and their problems existed in every age. For example, today, there are churches like the church at Ephesus, left its first love. There are churches like the church at Sardis, has a name that's alive, but it's really dead. There are churches like the Laodicean church, a church that is either neither hot nor cold, lukewarm, takes no stand on anything, compromises on everything. And there are churches like the Philadelphia church that is powerful. God has given it open door, and it is true to the Word of God. And there are churches like that in every age. Now, fourthly, these churches were given to us so that we could see a standard and we could have the discernment to measure where we are as a church. And fifthly, the very personal admonitions that are given to each church can also be personal admonitions given to each of us so that we can check up on ourselves to see where individually we as believers stand as God looks on. So we need to see the seven churches and recognize the situation. Let's look at them for just a moment. Number one, in chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus. I want you to notice this church. It had left its first love. This is the church of the first century. Left its first love. What is the first love of the church? Jesus. Churches become like social clubs. And if we're not careful, that's what the church seems to be to us. But the first love of the church is Jesus. And so we sing about Jesus. That's the reason our music needs to be carefully selected. Songs that honor Christ. Songs that lift the spirit close to the heart of God. The church at Ephesus had left its first love, representing the first century. The second church... In chapter 2, verse 8, unto the angel of the church at Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, who is dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things. Now what he's saying here, the Smyrna church was under severe persecution. That represented the church from the year 100 to 300 and 12 
A.D. That was the church under severe persecution. Now, toward the end of the first century, the church began to be under persecution. Nero had the apostle Paul slain. Domitian exiled John, the beloved apostle. But the persecution got more severe. And during the years just ahead, from the year 100 to 312, the church was under severe persecution. That represented the church at Smyrna. Thirdly, in verse 12, unto the angel of the church in Pergamum write these things, saith he who hath a sharp sword and two edges, with two edges, two edges. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against you, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now this is the church of the Middle Ages that allowed false doctrine to be all interwoven with some truths. And during that period, the church triumphant had to go underground. They were called the Separatists, the Paulicians, the Waldensians, the Anabaptists. And during that period, the church that everybody saw, and most of the time when you read history of the church, you read the history of the main line, that church from Constantine through the 3rd and the 4th and the 5th centuries until the Roman Catholic Empire was built. And during that period, the church was interwoven with false doctrine. Now doctrine always deals, or, or rather, uh, doctrine always influences the way you behave. What you believe has to do with the way you act. If you hold certain convictions, they're going to influence the way you act, the way you dress, the way you look, the activities you involve yourselves in, the worldliness, and so on. And so very naturally, the next church, the church at Thyatira, represents that period of time from about 1000 to 1517 when the church was all involved in poor living, immorality, popes vying with one another over who was going to control the church, and popes living with several different women, and thus it filtered down through the church. And the whole church was filled with immorality and impurity, and Jesus warns about that. And the next church is the Sardis church. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast a name that thou, art, that thou livest and art dead. Now the Sardis church was a church that seemed like it was really alive. Seemed like it was really doing something. But in reality... The church was dead because it had lost its soul winning zeal. It had lost its mission imperative and it got all involved with doctrine. Now thank God for the purity of doctrine that has come through this period. This was the period of the Reformation. When the old abuses of the Roman church was, were thrown off and the church was purified and some heard that word come out from among them. And if you look at verse 4, 
Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And there were some that came out and started the Reformation, Luther and Calvin, John Knox, and many others, and thank God for them. But these became so involved and, and bogged down in doctrine that they forgot the main purpose of the church. And the main purpose of the church has always been go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You don't have to do it by yourself. The mission mandate, the mission imperative of the church, the soul winning mission imperative. And the church represented by Sardis had forgotten that. And there was no missionary activity during that period. This goes from about 1517 to the end of the next century, about 1700. And then you come to the Philadelphia church. And if you look down at verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth no man shutteth and shutteth no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. This is the church at Philadelphia. Representing the church from about 1700 to about 1940, 1950. This was the church of the modern missionary movement. As we look at the church through the ages. Of course, this church at Philadelphia was a real church in the day in which John wrote this. The Philadelphia church was a wide awake church. It was a spiritual church. It had the spiritual mandate. Another church like that in that day was Antioch. You may remember the comparison between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. After the severe persecution started, Jerusalem sort of turned its sides, turned its eyes inward and was protecting itself. And the missionary mandate went to Antioch. And the Antioch church became the great mission church from which Paul went and Silas went and Barnabas went. It became the missionary church. And, and when, the, when this was written, these churches that, that Jesus chose were churches in Asia Minor that the people would be more familiar with. And the Philadelphia church was singled out and it was said to be the church with an open door, the church with a great missionary mind, mandate, the church with a great soul winning zeal. And this, through the ages represents that period of time when the missionary mandate was rediscovered and with William Carey and many of the other great early missionaries who decided to take the gospel of Christ around the world. And when that began to happen, some of the people who questioned about missions, they said if God gets ready to save the lost, whether they're in Africa or India, wherever they are, he can save them without your help or mine. We don't need to go. And so, when the missionary said, God wants me to go. I must go. Why, they said, sit down, young man. You have no business saying this to your elders. But the Holy Spirit put it on his heart in such a strong way that he got up. And he went to India. And he poured out his life in the life for Christ. The first many years he was there, no converts, but he translated the scriptures into the native language. And all who have followed in his train have seen the power of what God's Holy Spirit was doing in a man that dared 
to stem the tide and go following the missionary mandate. We have to be on constant guard lest we become so content with ourselves and so content with our own fellowship and so content with knowing each other and loving each other that we forget that God's going to choose somebody here and somebody here and somebody there and somebody here and somebody here and say, go. And then He's going to say to the church, you stay behind and pour the finances and the prayers into their lives so that they can go free-handed and represent you and represent heaven in a foreign land. But I want to tell you, that period of time is coming to a close. Mission stations are closing around the world. Mission opportunities, lands sometimes are closing. Now we're seeing right now a temporary opening of Eastern Europe and Russia. Thank God. For a little while ago, a few years ago, they were telling us that China was wide open. China isn't wide open. There are missionaries, but they have to go disguised as agriculturalists or doctors or missionaries or, or, or nurses or, or educators or teachers. Thank God for that. When the missionaries had to leave China in the 1940s because of the communism coming down, there were just comparatively a few Christians in China. At the end of that terrible bloodbath of communism in China, there came an opening, and we discover now there are millions of Christians in China because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And those who poured out their life for the Lord Jesus Christ, many of them dying. Last night, Brother Morgan and Ms. Morgan and I were talking about some of the missionaries that had to give their lives there. And God honored that. And has God, listen, you never suffer in vain for the Lord. You never persecuted in vain for the Lord. Whatever you do, Jesus will repay, even either now or there, and He will take the investment you've made and put it in the lives of others, and God will use your life or your death for His glory. And that's what we're seeing. But the modern mission movement is coming to a close. And we're now either in the last part of that modern mission movement, the last part of the period of Philadelphia, or, and the beginning of the Laodicean period, or we're already in the Laodicean period. Sometimes it's hard to detect. The Laodicean period is the period beginning roughly about 1940, following the war, 1950, when the church decided to get its eyes off Jesus and accommodate itself to the society in which we live. And the main theme of much of the church today is everybody's doing it. Let's do it like everybody else. And so the church worldwide has become lukewarm. And you, this is the age of mergers. This is the age of the ecumenical movement. This is the age when standards have been set aside. And everybody says, the water's fine, come on in, everybody welcome. And the wonderful banner, the blood bequeathed banner of those who have gone before us has been set aside. And we're saying it doesn't really matter how you live. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. You just come on in. Let's have a wonderful fellowship. And that'll be it. The Laodicean church age. 
Now some believe that the Laodicean church age will have its fruition in the time of the tribulation. When there will be a church, but it won't be the true church. There will be a church, but it will not be Jesus' church. There will be a church, but it will be a watered down, weak thing. And according to Revelation 13, the false prophet will arise and cause all on the earth to worship the political beast and there will be a union between the two. Now that's the church age through the ages. And each of these churches, as I see it, represents one of those periods of the church age. Now there's something else to see in this section. We want to see the admonitions that are given to these churches. Would you keep in mind that these were real churches in the day in which John wrote? Number two, they represent the churches through the ages, different periods of the church age. And number three, that in every period there were churches like all seven of these. There were churches that had left their first love. There were churches like the Philadelphia church that was red hot. God had given them an open door. Nobody could close it. There were churches like the Laodicean church, lukewarm. And even today, if we're in the Philadelphia period, the church that has an open door, there are still churches that have left their first love. There are churches like the Smyrna church under severe persecution. There are churches like the Thyatira and Pergamos church filled with false doctrine and false living. There are churches like the Sardis church has a name that it's alive but it's really dead. There are churches like the Philadelphia church wide awake. There are churches like the Laodicean church lukewarm. Now let's look at the admonitions of these various churches for just a moment or two. Look in chapter 2 verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, that's the seven angels, the seven angels of the church, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus, Jesus operates through the church. It's a very important truth to remember there. There are many, many parachurch organizations. The church is a band of baptized believers who have banded themselves together to carry out the commission of Christ. And Christ, Christ's business house on the earth is his church. Honor the church. Thank God for the Chinese Bible church. And I believe you're a church that honors Jesus. That honors your pastor. That honors the word of God. That has a mission mandate and obeys that mission mandate to send others out into the world to tell the gospel of Christ. And you have that wonderful mission, soul winning mandate of winning precious souls to Christ all over the Bay Area, all over San Francisco and wherever you are. I've been with some of you years ago at Berkeley University. When we went out, I don't know whether there's anybody here that was here at that time, and went over to Berkeley and handed out gospel tracts and witnessed to people on that campus. I've been with you, with some of you, when you'd go downtown in, in uh, Oakland, and downtown in San Francisco, and stand on the street corners, and stand by buildings, and stand in the Chinese communities, and hand out gospel tracts, and love the people toward Jesus Christ. That's the mission that God has given us. Thank God. But the Ephesian church, listen, I know thy works, verse 2, 
thy labor, thy patience. Thou canst not bear them who are evil. Thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. God knows all about your works. He knows all about the problems. He knows all about the things that you've done. He knows about your orthodoxy. Look at verse 3. You've borne, has patience for my name's sake, has labored, and has not fainted. That was the Ephesian church. But verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The first love of the Lord's church is Jesus himself. The theme of this camp, close to thee. Fanny Crosby wrote these words, Thou my everlasting portion, more than friend or life to me, all along my pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee. Not for ease or worldly pleasure, not for fame my prayer shall be, glad be will I toil and suffer, only let me walk with thee. Lead me through the veil of shadows, bear me o'er life's fitful sea, then the gate of life eternal may I enter, Lord, with thee. Close to thee, close to thee. And that's what we're here for, to draw our hearts closer and closer. But the Ephesian church forgot that. It got so active and so involved and so do, doing so many things, they finally forgot why they were doing it. They forgot what it was all about. Beloved, we must never forget Jesus. He's the one we love. I appreciate Miss Betty so much. She's constantly bringing us back to give the glory to God. Even last night as we talked, she said, I want God to get the glory. I want Jesus to get all the glory. He's the one we love. He's the one who died for us. He's the one we serve. The Ephesian church had forgotten its first love. And all of us stand in danger all the time, individually and collectively. We stand in danger of forgetting Jesus. We can get so caught up in the love feast and the wonderful fellowship that we forget He's the one we love. And we have to constantly measure our actions. Will this please Jesus? Is this what he wants? Secondly, the church at Smyrna. Look at it for just a moment. Unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write these things. Verse 8. I know thy works. Verse 9. Thy tribulation, poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they're Jews and are not, but they're synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. The Smyrna church was under severe persecution. Men were having to give their lives for Christ. This period of persecution went on from about 100 A.D. to 312. A long time. And doubtless during that 200 year period, there were individual believers that looked up and said, Lord, oh Lord, how long? How long? How long? We've seen the church under persecution somewhat in our lifetime. In China, in Russia, in Cuba, and in other places. A comparatively short period of time, but under severe persecution. Jesus said, expect that. Beloved, it's not going to get any better in America. It's going to get worse. Things are going to go down the drain. 
And we're going to have to face a time when we'll not have the liberties and freedoms we have today. Whoever dreamed that a man like Lester Roloff would have to be in jail in Texas for running some wonderful children's homes? Whoever dreamed that a preacher in Nebraska would be taken out of his own pulpit and put in prison because he had a Christian school? And I want to say to you, we need to be ready for the persecution when it comes. And the only way we can be ready is to be sure that our heart is connected to Jesus. That we're doing what we do for Him. And as precious as the fellowship is, what will we do when we have no fellowship at all? Watchman Nee served in China. I understand that when the communists came, he was arrested, put in prison. He wrote everything he wrote before he was 40 years old. From the time he was 40 till he was 62, he could write nothing about Jesus. He could not speak his name. He could not preach the word. Just a few days before he was released, before he was released into heaven, before his death at the hands of the communists, Watchman Nee wrote his wife this note, I have learned how to contain my joy. The communists didn't have any idea what that meant. His wife knew immediately that meant he still knows Jesus and is honoring Jesus. Beloved, the church under persecution, we need to get ready for it. And you know what Jesus said to that church? Don't fear any of these. The devil will cast some of you into prison. Don't worry about that. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. What does that mean? Be thou faithful unto death. I think it means two things. First of all, when we give our hearts to Jesus Christ, He wants us to be faithful even to physical death. If martyrdom must come, I'll do it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. The world behind me, the cross before me, I won't turn back. If none go with me, I still will follow. I won't turn back. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. But there's another meaning of that. I believe when Jesus saves us, He wants us to get, be like a jet airplane. He wants us to take off and keep going. How many of you enjoy getting in an airplane that goes like this? And drops a thousand feet and then takes off again? I don't enjoy that at all. The other day in the, we left Dallas, we had a lot of disturbance like that, like that. I didn't like that. <laughs> Jesus wants us to be like a jet airplane, to take off and go on and on and on and on and on. And when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, count the cost. He doesn't want you to start like that and then go like that, then go like that and go like that and go like that. He wants you to take off. Be thou faithful until the time I take you home and just go right on into the skies. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. Beloved, that's Jesus' message to His church. The church under severe persecution. But let's go on. Look in chapter three, chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these things, saith he who hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, 
even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was among you, slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast there them, thou there them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What was the doctrine of Balaam? See, the church at Pergamos was all mixed up with the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I want to tell you, you have to stand sentinel all the years at the door of your church and the door of your heart unless you, lest you let worldliness and the flesh and the devil take over. You never reach the safety zone till you get home. I don't care if you've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, one month, one day. The same battle will be there. You never reach the safety zone till you get home. And Jesus said to that church at Pergamos, you have the doctrine of Balaam that you've allowed to come in. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Well, the doctrine of Balaam, Balaam was a strange seer, sometimes called a prophet, sometimes called a preacher. Whether he was really a preacher of the Lord or not, I'll know when we get to heaven. A lot of strange things about him in the Old Testament. But Balaam took his position over here and, and the Moabites saw the Israelites coming through their land and the Moabites hated the Israelites, the people of God. The Moabites representing the world. The Israelites representing the people of God. And so the king of the Moabites sent for Balaam. He said, you come down here and I want you to curse these Israelites. And Balaam said, I can't do that. What God has blessed, I can't curse. He was right. He said again, he said, I'll give you so much money if you'll come and curse the Israelites. Balaam said, well, I can't do that. What God has blessed, I can't curse. He was right. He kept on, he kept on, he kept on. Now listen, if God has called you to preach, if God has called you to be a leader, a teacher, a special worker for him, you have to constantly be on the guard lest the world and the flesh and the devil wear you away with its constant moving and an approach to get you to compromise. And so Balaam finally said, well, I can't curse them, but I can come down there and look. And so Balaam came down there and looked. And then he went aside to the king and he said, now look, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how you can curse them. You throw a big party down here. Get all your pretty girls to go down here and have a big party. And you send an invitation for all the nice looking boys over there in the camp of Israel to come down here and have a dance with us. And that's what they did. And after a while they had this dance, this big shindig, and it turned into a, an orgy. And the Israeli boys and the Moabite girls intermeshed and intertwined in fornication and adultery. And Israel lost its power. Jesus said, hey, church at Pergamos, you have those there that deal in the doctrine of Balaam. Compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because you've done this, I'm about to remove your candlestick. And you also have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those who say they're Christians but live licentiously. 
They can live any way they want to because they have glorious freedom in Christ. One of the most obnoxious doctrines today among us are those who say we in Christ are free. We can live as we please. If we want to drink, we can drink. If we want to carouse, we can carouse because we're in Christ. You say, I've never heard of a doctrine like that. It's prevalent in America. And that was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, I hate that doctrine. And you've got some there that hold to that. Now you be careful. Listen to what he said. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Fourthly, look at verse 18. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God who hath his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine bronze. I know thy works and love and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou allowest that woman Jezebel who calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her the space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into the bed with them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Immorality, hypocrisy. And notice, Jezebel was involved in the deep things of Satan. Satanic worship, witchcraft. You see, the, what, what you believe influences the way you behave. The church at Pergamos believed wrong. The church at Thyatira behaved wrong. And the one passed the other down to the other. If you believe right and you hold true to this wonderful word, the book of God, and you hide its word in your heart that you might not sin against God and you believe its admonitions and you listen to the preachers God sends to you and you listen to the teachers and you listen to parents and you listen to those who are concerned about you and you heed and honor what God says you'll not fall into that snare the church at Thyatira practiced wrong and Jesus said I've given up on you I gave you space to repent and you didn't repent I'm going to just remove you there are three more churches I'll be through for this morning. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Under the church at Sardis. Write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Don't ever take for granted the Chinese Bible church. Praise God for it. And hold on to those things that make you different from others. But remember, not all churches are like that. Just because a church has many people in a big steeple doesn't mean that it's honoring Christ. I used to hear it said, if you'll preach the word, people will come. Well, that's partially true. There are those who do not preach the word and people come. Thousands of them. You can just turn on your television and you can watch it. 
the church at Sardis had a name that it was really alive. Sometimes some named church will be named and somebody say, oh, that's a wonderful church. Compare it to what the New Testament teaches. The Sardis church had a name that it was alive, but it was dead. But just dead. Now roughly, this church is equated in the timeline. And as you think of the church in the periods with the Reformation period. During that Reformation period, thank God for those who came out and held to true doctrines, wonderful doctrines. And many of the mainline denominations today came out of the old Roman movement and formed movements that were at that time very, very powerful. But those who followed in their train forgot the heart. And they became so involved in their doctrines that they left off the mission mandate. The quickest way a church can die is to quit giving to missions. The quickest way a church can die is to quit having soul winning zeal. Thank God that in this church you have a soul winning concern that sends you out after other people. Don't ever lose that. The church at Sardis, a name that was alive, really did. Thank God for the next church. Look in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast, not kept, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, who say there are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold thou fast that which thou hast, and that no man take thy crown. This was the church of the modern mission movement. The church with soul winning power. The church with authority to go out and reach the lost. The church at Philadelphia. Wide open door. And beloved, I believe that's what God has given to the Chinese Bible church. A church with a wide open door to reach the Bay Area. To reach all across the San Francisco area. To reach out and find somebody here and bring them to Christ. Somebody here and bring them to Christ. Somebody there and bring them to Christ. Reach over the sea and find somebody there that needs Christ. And reach across the continent and bring someone to Christ. As you send out soul winners. Both locally and in foreign missions and world and home missions. The church at Philadelphia was a church wide open. And nobody could shut it. The powerful church. The last church mentioned is the saddest of all. In chapter 3, verse 14, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and naked, and blind, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now the Laodicean church 
lukewarm. No power. No stand. Compromised. Neither hot nor cold. I want you to notice this. Verse 18. Here's what Jesus said to that church. This, he put his finger on what was the problem. Buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You're rich in the wrong things. They're rich in the things that do not really count in heaven. You need the gold character, the gold of godliness in your life, holiness in your life. You see, it does matter that we involve ourselves in biblical separation. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. I'll not be ashamed of you. Secondly, he says, Thou mayest be clothed, and by white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. We're living in a time when people don't care whether they wear anything or not. I know this doesn't just refer to physical clothes. It's talking about the robes of righteousness of Christ. But there's a, an element in which God cares what we look at. You know when Adam and Eve first sinned? They took some fig leaves and tried to hide their nakedness. And God said, that'll never do. And he killed an animal. Symbolizing the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin. But he took the skins of that animal and clothed that person. The man over in the tombs was naked. When Jesus came and spoke the word, he was healed, and the Bible says he was clothed and in his right mind. Beloved, it matters that we clothe ourselves, that we not go around half naked. Jesus wants his church to be without spot or wrinkle, to be careful that we look like God's people. Let's go on. Anoint thine eyes with salve that thou mayest see. You see, the Laodicean church didn't see these spiritual truths. They had no concept at all of where they stood. They thought everything was all right. Jesus said through John to the Laodicean church and to the church of compromise and worldliness, open your eyes spiritually. Look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. Look at yourself through the eyes of Jesus. Holiness belongs to God. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Be ye holy as I am holy. Pass the time of your sojourn here in fear. Fear before God so that your life and your mind and your very being will be in so in touch with Jesus that there'll be a holy glow about your life. I don't mean that we become a holy Joe. There's a lot of difference in being a holy Joe that is better than anybody else or a holier than thou and having a holy glow. When Moses came down from the mount where he'd been with Jesus, his face glowed and he didn't even know it. He had to put a veil over his face lest the people look upon what they thought was God. Are you close enough to Jesus so that there's a holy glow about you? I'm not talking about acting better than somebody else 
or being afraid that you will be around somebody that might tamper with you. I mean being so close to Jesus, so in love with Him, so walking with Him, that He can speak to you. And you don't need to have anybody come up and say, hey, you need to put some clothes on, because God's already told you inside. You don't have to have somebody come along and say, hey, you need to watch the amusements that you involve yourself. The Holy Spirit has already talked to you about that. You don't have to have somebody come along and say, hey, watch the way you talk. Because the Holy Spirit has whispered in your heart about that. You see? That's all the time we're going to have this morning. I want to take up here tomorrow morning. Beloved, would you let Jesus be so real in your life today that you would say individually, I want to walk close with the King. I want to walk close to Thee. Filled with Thy Spirit. Be what Jesus wants. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment.